Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're the premiere podcast all about Rick Riordan's book series. Starting today... Wait, I'm backing up. What are we starting uh, today? We're starting today. Um, this is our new podcast, Unwise Girls. <laughs> we're going to be talking about Rick Riordan's uh, Various book series, the Percy Jackson series, Kane Chronicles, Magnus Archives, all that stuff. And we thought we'd skip over all of that shit Percy Jackson stuff no one cares about and just jump in right at chapter nine of the last book. Yeah, I mean, people are always like, oh, I want to see the scene where where they go to St. Louis and stuff like that. But it's like, no, we aren't giving you any of that, little child. It's time for war. We, we're skipping both of uh, San Luis' appearances. Jane, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing good. It's it's my birthday. Happy birthday, Jane. Thank you. How old are you, if you want to reveal that information to the public? <laughs> uh, I, I am as of time of recording, but who knows when this could possibly go up. 22. Wow. That's like baby age. <laughs> You are, like, not that much older than me. I'm 23. That's older. (laughs) Jacqueline is the senpai of the podcast. That's true. Congratulations, Jane, on reaching another year of life. I am hoping for many more for you. At least, like, you know, five or six more, at least. Um, Fingers crossed. And speaking of people who have just about lived to another birthday... Uh-huh. Shall we get into the summaries for these episodes? Definitely. Although, um, spoiler alert, a lot of people in these chapters do not live to see another birthday. That's It's sadly true. Jane, take us away. Chapter 9. Two snakes save... save bleh, good start. <laughs> Chapter 9. Two snakes save my life. Percy and Mrs. O'Leary head back up to the surface, where Percy phones Annabeth and tells her to gather up as many fighters as she can and meet him at the Empire State Building. They meet up there, along with 40 demigods, who Annabeth was able to bring with her. They head up to Mount Olympus, seeking a personal audience for Zeus, so that Percy can tell him about Cronus' trap and convince him to redeploy some of their forces to protect New York. The mountain is almost deserted, and when they pass the statue of Hera, Annabeth mentions that Hera has cursed her since their last encounter, and is using her sacred animal, cows, to poo wherever Annabeth goes to try and make her step in it. They reach the throne room where Bessie, the Ophiotaurus, is still being kept. True to her word, Hestia is also there, tending the hearth. But other than that, there are no gods. She's impressed that Percy wasn't vaporised by the sticks, but tells him that he still needs to try and understand who Luke's family is, and so gives him a brief vision of the time Thalia, Annabeth and Luke met for the first time. It's here that Luke gives Annabeth a gift, a knife, the same one that she uses to this day. The vision fast-forwards to later, where Luke is trying to sneak back into his mum's house to get medical supplies for a wounded Thalia, but is stopped by the arrival of Hermes. This is also where the vision ends, as Hermes has arrived in the present. He offers to take a message to Zeus for Percy, and mentions that Athena has already realised the situation must be a trap. Nonetheless, Typhon is so dangerous that Zeus can't risk sending any of the gods away for an extended period. He also relays messages to Percy and Annabeth from Athena. Use Plan 23, 
Don't Forget the Rivers, and Stay Away From My Daughter, Jackson. Before Hermes leaves, Annabeth says that she's sorry for what happened to Luke, and for some unknown reason, Hermes goes absolutely nuclear at her, before switching his attention to Percy when he tries to step in and defend Annabeth. He only backs off from electrocuting him because his snakes, George and Martha, warn him that Percy is now invulnerable. This is news to Annabeth, and after Hermes bails, she puts together that it's how Luke is hosting Kronos too. The two put the more difficult topics aside for later and head back to the elevators to the Empire State Building to activate whatever Plan 23 is. On the way down, the other demigods approach them in a panic. Everyone in the city has been put to sleep by Morpheus, and Kronos has trapped the city in a bubble of slow time. There's no one to help the demigods in the city, and no help can come from outside. The invasion has started. Chapter 10. I buy some new friends. Annabeth uses a shield with a built-in video display to observe the incoming enemies, and the demigods split into teams to counter them on as many fronts as possible. Even Thalia and the hunters arrive to help, although Percy notes that Ares' cabin declined Annabeth's invitation to come along. While the other demigods rush off to fight, Percy helps with Plan 23, which it turns out involves activating a bunch of statue automatons that Daedalus has left around the city as an insurance policy against the Olympians. Percy takes this opportunity to dive into the fork of the Hudson and East Rivers, and bribes the spirits of both rivers into helping against the amphibious forces in exchange for the sand dollar Poseidon gave him. When he climbs out of the river, Annabeth tells Percy that they need to go and back up Michael Yu's team, who are trying to hold the, William B- the Williamsburg Bridge against a huge army led by the Minotaur. Chapter 11. We Break a Bridge. Blackjack and Porkpie give Percy and Annabeth a lift to the battle, which is going very badly. The monsters have formed into phalanxes, which are pretty arrow-resistant, and the demigods are splitting their attention between shooting and dragging mortals out of cars before the monsters can kill them. Percy tells Annabeth to organise a defensive line while he distracts the monsters, charging the Minotaur. He draws it into a one-on-one duel, although it's not much of a contest. With his new strength, Percy kills it easily before barreling straight into the enemy lines and forcing them back across the bridge and into Brooklyn. Unfortunately, in the excitement of routing the enemy, he overextends on the other side of the bridge, and ends up having to cover the other Half-Blood's retreat when Kronos arrives with 40 mounted demigods. Annabeth stays to help him out, and while they hold for a short while, Annabeth is soon overwhelmed, taking a knife that was meant for Percy, and would have struck his mortal spot by pure luck. The blow, as it happens, was struck by Ethan Nakamura, who has apparently survived the explosion on the Princess Andromeda. Percy manages to call Blackjack to get Annabeth out of the line of fire, but he's not so lucky. Kronos approaches him directly and blasts him so hard he flies back across the bridge to Manhattan. Michael Yu, who is still on the bridge, suggests that Percy just destroys it to keep the enemy at bay, since it's already been damaged so badly. Percy does so, using his new, immense strength to shatter the bridge with Riptide. This actually works, and Kronos is forced back, but it doesn't come without a cost. The bridge was destroyed so severely and so suddenly that Michael Yu didn't actually have a chance to get out of the way, and he's died. And while Percy is reeling from this, he gets a call from Silena, who says that Annabeth needs a healer now. So, what do you think of these chapters? The Battle of New York has officially begun, and it's pretty good. It's it's really good. I really like like the atmosphere in these chapters. I think they they're really tense, especially like with how empty everything is. Oh, yeah, like the environment of just like a New York City, the most bustling place in the United States, possibly. Just like completely dead asleep. Yeah. 
is a very good, I guess, battleground for this story to take place because it's an interesting, like, in a way, the idea of, like, this is all taking place in this place where everyone is around, but nobody's actually seeing what's going on because they're all asleep is kind of a, I guess, handy parallel to, like, everything that's happening in these books with, like, the mist and stuff. Yeah, definitely. And it gives... It's a quick way to, like, give the finale a much more epic feeling by setting it in, like, a real location, making the stakes feel more grounded. It feels almost post-apocalyptic. Yeah, there's there's a specific line that I really like, which is, um... Like, they have their big battle cry, which is supposed to be, like, a really triumphant moment. And for a moment it sounded brave, but it died quickly in the silence of ten million sleeping New Yorkers. God, like, yeah. fuck, that's so good. It's really good. And on top of that, like, it's this set of chapters that is entirely framed by, like, these 15-year-olds, like, at oldest, putting together war strategy. Which is, like, I don't know. There, It very much has that good, like, feeling of complete, like, depth removal. Like, this is nobody is ready for this war it has come very suddenly like i even i like reading this did not expect this to happen this soon yeah it's it definitely blindsides the reader you think there's going to be a lot of like finagling and haggling with zeus about whether to get any of their forces back but nope time's up yeah because like i think the way that these books are usually structured the big final battle always takes place like in like the last four chapters, let's say. I mean, yeah, that's, four or five. that's how Battle of the Labyrinth went, but we've been completely blindsided here, and it's great. Very much so. I'm super into it. Um, I think that one thing I want to say for this is that this is really like showing all the progress Percy has made as a character. Oh, absolutely. The, the Minotaur fight in particular is a great showcase of that. The, the Minotaur fight is brilliant in a lot of ways. I think it's really a good use of like a basic storytelling technique, which is just like introducing an element at the beginning of a character's arc and then putting it back to them at the end and seeing like how they have changed and how they face it differently. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember complaining all the way back in... Um... I think, was it Titan's Curse, where I was saying, you know, why isn't Rick reusing the monsters to, like, show how the relationship with the characters is changing? And that's exactly uh-huh. what he's doing here. Turns like, out he was saving it for <laughs> the, the best possible moment. He was saving it for a really good moment where we get to see that, like, Percy has dealt with so much shit that he's not even scared of the Minotaur at this point. Like, it shows shows back up with a redesign and a cool new big axe, and he doesn't give a shit. He taunts it and kills it in the space of a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, it's so fast. I I think it's really impressive that this comes off so, I guess, well-earned, I guess. I, mm-hmm. um, like, I think that... Maybe it's just me. I think that, like, there is a lot of excitement to how Percy has been boosted in this book. Like, we even see it in a different way in the beginning of chapter 8, when, like, Chiron tells him, like, you know, may, I might be the instructor for all these kids, but you're their leader right now. Mm-hmm. And I think, 
we've had these moments of Percy being in different roles. We talked about it in, I think it was Titan's Curse in the opening battle with Thalia and uh-huh. the, uh, the fucking thingy that shoots spikes. Doctor, uh, what's his face? Yeah, Doctor Thorn. That's it. Because he shoots thorns. And <laughs> he's a manticore. Manticore is the word. Yeah. And we talked about sort of how Percy like worked in this grand like scheme of the team and like what his role was. Mm-hmm. And I think like now that we're seeing like, this really is like who Percy is. Like this is his, and he's not bad. He's not a bad leader even. Absolutely not. I mean, he's, he's clearly got a feel for his own strengths and weaknesses. Like he knows to delegate the strategizing to Annabeth. He's confident in his own abilities as well, in a way that mm-hmm. he hasn't always been. Yeah, I think it's it's maybe a case of, like... Because he even says it when he's on Mount Olympus, like, what have they done to my city? Like, this this is his home turf. His back is completely against the wall, so we get to see what happens when he is, like, pushed to his limits. Right, this is the city where his mom lives. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit, I didn't even think about that. She's, like, lying asleep in her flat somewhere. Yeah, like she and Paul were playing Monopoly or something (laughs) and assuming they weren't just like already asleep from that they (laughs) just like plopped their heads down and I guess there's a part where it's like oh there's a bus driver and he's sleeping with his thumb in his mouth I I is like everyone positioned like that or do you take like your natural sleep stance I think so like they are they're not just like knocked unconscious they do seem to be like restfully sleeping yeah i'm just like the image of like a grown man sucking his thumb (laughs) while sleeping brings to mind a lot of things a lot of things that have crossed your twitter timeline that we cannot get into chronos his role in this is really interesting to me Mm -hmm. because the gods don't even view him as the threat in this battle yeah no they are way more concerned about typhon and like Rightfully so, I suppose. But I think it's interesting that, like, Kronos is the big bat of the series, and he's not even, like, the direct threat that everyone cares about. I mean, like, he's the direct threat that the main characters care about. Mm -hmm. He's not the direct threat that the larger, like, I guess, sphere around those characters care about. I suppose we could maybe even, like, draw a parallel between Percy and Kronos here. In terms of their leadership styles, like, Kronos knows which of his underlings are, like, more physically imposing than him, and knows that he can use those, like, to his advantage. He's a manipulator in that way, which I think makes him, you know, that's not actually super uncommon for the, you know, the real main villain was behind the scenes all along. That's not uncommon at all. Uh, I mean, it fits with his characterization as the crooked one. Very much so. I'm really interested in the stuff we get with Luke in the in, in the in the especially the first chapter. Yeah, this is from from here on out it's mostly like just non-stop action. But this is a really interesting like set of questions that were handed just before the fighting starts. Yeah. The kids all go up to Mount Olympus and they meet with Hestia uh, and Hermes as well eventually. Mm-hmm. And Hestia shows Percy a vision of the first time that Luke, Annabeth, and Thalia all met. Yeah, also calling it now. 
Uh, I I theorized a little while ago that the spy is unintentionally Annabeth because she's kept hold of the, like a gift that Luke gave her, and the gift right. is like transmitting stuff to Kronos. It's definitely the knife. Oh shit, that'd be really good. Yeah. Hmm. I'm still not sure of that theory, but I do. Mm-hmm. I think it's enjoyable. I mean, it's it's either this or fucked up Sally Beauregard. That's what we've got at this point. I I think that like. It's really interesting to see Annabeth in this in this like way, because she's a lot more like feral. vulnerable here. Feral as well. <laughs> um, she's just like a lost little gremlin, like stuck inside of a fucking factory when we first see her. It is. It's like simultaneously really interesting to see like Annabeth like in this state. Like we've always seen her usually pretty composed, and just to imagine her like hiding in a factory, beating monsters to death with a hammer. I really like getting that image of her because I think that fits really nicely with a kind of vicious edge that we know that she has. Definitely. Like, desperation can sometimes be a real hallmark of Annabeth's character. Yeah, that's very true. So I'm I'm very into this. But the part that maybe is more important is that we get to see that Luke at this time went to visit his mom again. And we see that on that same night, Hermes was there. And it was probably the only time Luke ever met Hermes. Yeah, that's that's definitely the implication. I'm curious about whether, like, this was all that Hestia wanted Percy to see and he's supposed to, like, figure it out from here. Or if she was like, oh, fuck, I'm airing out his dirty laundry and he's, like, coming here. I need to stop. I'm curious about that, too, because Hestia has been a little bit reticent to share every detail. Mm-hmm. But she's also not hiding a lot. She's kind of directly saying, like, you shouldn't dip yourself in the river sticks. That's a bad idea. You should do this. So it's it's possible she just cut herself off mm-hmm. because Hermes was showing up. And the conversation with Hermes is, is very good. It's very good. We've we, we were a fan of, like, chill, laid-back Hermes in Sea of Monsters. And it is, like a really good um, encapsulation of how dire this situation is and how badly the loss of Luke has hurt him that he gets this angry. Yeah, Hermes here is less of a, I guess, like, friendly, you know, the this archetypical, like, friendly mail delivery person who tosses you your morning paper and uh-huh. says, how's, how's it going, Joe? And you give them presents on Christmas and stuff and is more of like a war courier who is delivering messages back and forth across the battlefield. Do you think the gods would get like offended if you gave them a Christmas present? Hmm. (laughs) I don't want to get into it. It's just food for thought. Okay. uh, Listeners think about this report back to us, send us emails, uh, tweet us on Twitter, uh, discord, awesome discord. Engage, engage, engage. Yes. Um, But I do like this conversation a lot. I like that Percy is continuing his streak of like challenging the gods Absolutely. in ways when you like really probably shouldn't. Yeah, th- this is this is absolutely the same kind of thing as chucking that ruby at Hades' head. Yeah, but instead of a ruby, it's it's a it's like a metaphorical ruby. He's chucking a, a ruby and, and sorry, you go. And inscribed on that ruby is uh, the words, "You are a bad father, and you let your son die." He is hurling a chunk of cold hard facts straight at Hermes' stupid face. Yeah, 
I and like it is like I do enjoy seeing Hermes like regret and like his emotion here. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to feel bad for him though. Absolutely. I mean, no matter what Annabeth did, it seems to have been confined to like a single fuck up she made. Whereas uh, Hermes consistently fucked up for Luke's entire life. And so it's kind of difficult to pin the blame on Annabeth, whatever it was. It's a bit different here, yeah. I I am really interested in what it could be. That like, what did oh, Annabeth do that fucked everything up? Do you have any theories on that? I don't know. I mean, it could be something... It probably won't be because that would be kind of a lame reveal. But it could be as simple as just Hermes is pissed that they were friends for so long and Annabeth didn't spot the signs that he was going bad. Right, that could be it. But yeah, I don't think they, that that wouldn't be held back as a reveal if that was the case. No, I don't think so. My guess is that like something happened in the continuity of Battle of the Labyrinth that we just like didn't get to see. Oh, that's very possible. I don't remember specifically if Annabeth was ever on her own, but the characters did get split up quite a lot towards the end, so it's very possible that she had some stuff we didn't see. Yeah. Let's keep on the Annabeth track for a minute. Okay. I think that it's really fun that Percy... It's really telling that Percy falls back into his old dynamic with Annabeth so easily. Definitely, yeah. We talk about, like, the way that their relationship works a lot on this show, I guess because, yeah, I don't know, maybe we are the Percybeth shippers. I mean, they are just, like, the two main characters at this point. They're the two who recur across most of the books. Basically, yeah. And I really think that, like, it's telling that he is able to still return to this dynamic without, I mean, there's baggage there, but it's old baggage. It's the same old baggage of, like, you care about Luke more than you care about me. You can tell that these are people who are very comfortable around each other and have gone through a lot of shit together just from, like you said, the way that they just fall back into their old routine so easily. Even after uh, Percy and Rachel share that little smooch. <laughs> you know, on on some, like, deeply fucked up level, I wonder if Percy is, like, a little bit glad that the only person who saw that got blown up. <laughs> Like, there has oh, to be, like, Jesus a guilty Christ. little thought in the back of his mind. Uh, I mean, Blackjack's still there. Oh, yeah, no, fair enough. If Blackjack dies in the battle, in the battle then maybe. <laughs> Actually, I say that, there is, there is, like, a character moment in here that I really like that demonstrates the complete opposite, that Percy is actually cool and empathetic. What's that? Which is, um, on, on the bridge when he's, like, driving back the monster army. This didn't need to be in here, but I love the touch that he hesitates to kill one of the hellhounds because he spent so much time around Mrs. O'Leary. And obviously he does it in the end because he realizes that he has to, but I love that he hesitates and he has to think about it. It's not like a long drawn out thing. Mm -hmm. It's a few sentences between the hellhound appearing, the hellhound dying. And between that, Percy is like, okay, this isn't Mrs. O'Leary. Don't think of it as Mrs. O'Leary. This thing is going to kill your friends. Yeah, it's it's nothing mind-blowing. It's just, you didn't need to do that, Rick, but I really appreciate that you did. Yeah, it could have been another, like, Percy wa- walks through the crowd and cuts down the hellhounds and all that stuff. Which it mostly but is. I d- yeah, but I do appreciate the moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hera... <laughs> <laughs> 
So we've talked, I think, a little bit about, like, the potential for what kind of conflicts could happen in the future with Hera kind of being (laughs) snubbed by Percy and Annabeth. And And it turns out the conflict is poop. Poop. Uh, Now, I'm... Jane. Hello. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm... I don't... I don't... I don't know. Like, I know that this is going to be something bigger, but... Wouldn't it be really funny if this just was the entire resolution to that? See, I, I'm i kind of the opinion that it would be kind of cool if this was the entire resolution to that. Because, like, just because of the context that Annabeth is telling us this in, like, they're about to get into a war for the fate of humanity. Everything is completely fucked. They're down to their last defenses. And Hera, instead of preparing for that, has been spending her time making cows poop in front of a 14-year-old. It's like, that exact it, kind of... Yeah, uh-huh, it underscores like that exact pettiness and arrogance that the gods have always had, in like a really strong way. I think. Yeah, I kind of agree because, like, imagine the idea of like a minor inconvenience being like p- beset upon someone for the rest of their life <laughs> is absolutely the kind of thing that I think a god in this setting would really just enjoy doing i mean this isn't even the first time it's happened to annabeth like she gets spiders sicked on her constantly because of her acne like these are stacking up Mm-hmm. and that's not even a god that's just like all some old curse shit yeah there's just they're just all all the figures of greek myth just seem to be petty assholes yeah i i'm really into it Definitely. but i am I wonder if there will be that, like, Titan's curse moment of, like, oh, Percy's sword is stopped because that's the curse of Ares. Maybe the thing, there will be a little... Mm-hmm. The thing is, I think if that's what you're going for, you really have no choice but to go for the nuclear option with Hera. Because she is the god of family. And I feel like oh. that it would involve, like, Annabeth's family being threatened or even killed in some way. That's really fucked up. Exactly. I'm not sure it's going to go there. I wouldn't hate that. I, yeah, no, it, actually, you know, it would be a really, a really cool, like, cap to that arc if Annabeth is put in a position where she has to save her family because she's learned to value them. Yeah, because Annabeth, her whole deal with her family has been a recurring element in the series. Mm -hmm. And, like, having it end here, or at least, you know, having that specific arc end here would i think be really pretty decent uh, writing yeah definitely you know tie it into some other things you know make it so like oh hera says that if you do this your family will be died or some <laughs> shit and it turns out to have a double meaning and they're just like dipped in some paint uh-huh uh <laughs> did i say died <laughs> yeah you did <laughs> god damn it um I, one of my favorite like petty god moments i was just i think i was just about to mention what you're saying percy walks into because he's given a he's given a little thing uh and athena leaves him a message like hey Mm -hmm. remember the rivers and he sees that all the monsters are approaching on boats and so he wades into the east river like different petty god things 
Ooh, okay. He wades into like the like where the East River and like is it like where that and the Hudson River like meet or something? Yeah, it's right at the fork of the rivers. And he like he basically like it's uh, insults the gods of the rivers <laughs> until they come out, try and kill them with all the pollution that is there. Yeah. He he's he obviously survives and then he's like listen you assholes i will clean your rivers if you just like drown some people for me <laughs> it's really good it's very good i'm not sure about this as like a payoff to the sand dollar thing no it feels weird it's a it's kind of a weak payoff there's no real development there there's no twist on our expectations like poseidon just gives him a thing tells him what to do with it and a book later he does it I guess, like, not every magical item has to be some big fucking thing. I guess not. If just, you know, putting it as, like, part of the cliffhanger at the end of the book felt like it would amount to more than this. Yeah, it ends up being just kind of like a washing machine. Yeah, more or less. There, I'm even kind of conflicted on, like, how it pans out, because, like, I was really interested because the river gods start fighting over, like, who's gonna get it. Mm-hmm. And then he just kind of snaps it in half and is like, I am doing it for both of you. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I think if if he'd had to, like, pick, and we saw in the battle, like, the decisions of which river he chose to clear out, that could have been quite interesting. It really could have been. And, like, I, I get it. I just think it's maybe not the strongest choice that could have been there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I When did this book come out again? Uh, I believe it came out in 2009. Uh, okay, I just, I needed to check that for the sake of my own sanity, because, um, like, the moment where Annabeth is saying, like, oh, we need to activate all the statues and get them to defend our home, that to me had, like, major Deathly Hallows Part 2 energy, and I needed to make sure that Rick was not ripping that off. You're saying that you you feel like Deathly Hallows, the, the, stat, the fucking McGonagall statue thing... Yeah, I'm saying uh, when I read that, that was what was going through my head, and I was like terrified that Rick was just trying to do his own version of that. Did this come out before? No, it, it's no, it could before have. that movie. So, if anything, uh, Deathly Hallows ripped this off. Probably. I mean, wait, was this mo- was that a movie exclusive event? Uh, good question. Actually, I don't know. I feel like I remember the shrieking shaft, but it was definitely. About, like, oh. I feel like it was given way more weight in the movie like it's the big climactic scene i do like the idea a lot though in this book yeah definitely if we're like if we're going ham on the idea of like this is the battle for western civilization it does make sense to have the statues of all the important figures like pitch in and help if that's if that's what you're committed to going for rick then this is technically a good decision for that even beyond that, it's just kind of like, oh, this is a funny concept. Like, oh, there are famously a lot of statues in New York City, I think. This this vindicates my childhood fear, instilled into me by the Series 3 Doctor Who episode Blink, that every single statue is actually alive and is going to kill me. Well, or defend you, depending on how their creator feels at any given second. <laughs> I suppose that's true. I also... I do love as like a bit of extra characterization. Well, not characterization, just an extra little thing about Daedalus that mm-hmm. he like 
had a contingency plan to attack Olympus. Because, yeah, no, that tracks. No, yeah, he was the guy who infiltrated Camp Half-Blood to be like, maybe I'll say, maybe I'll side with you guys or else I will kill all of you. Yeah, he very clearly, there was no love lost between them, for sure. Plus, it also plays into the idea that was presented really early on of like, oh, look at all the like Greek iconography that is all around the United States. Yeah. It's, it almost like reverses that in a really interesting way because it's not like they're talking about like, oh, here's the New York statue of, I don't know, Zeus or whatever. I don't know if there is one of those, but mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It's like, here's the, here's the statue of some governor. Well, yeah, and, because again, if this is the concept you're going ham on, then your assertion is that this is like all the stuff that was built off the back of the Greek gods. So right. yeah, it makes sense that they'd like come out to defend it. And I'm sure there is a lot to be said about like architecturally, like the decisions that were made probably do result from like Greek and Roman influences. Uh-huh. So it's it there are there are layers. There are layers. I enjoy it. Definitely. Hey, Michael, you fucking dies. Okay. So I wasn't sure when I read this. Uh-huh. Because it's not as explicit as Beckendorf dying. Hmm. So I uh, almost wonder if this is going to be a misdirect and like Michael you maybe actually survived. I'm going to be very disappointed if this is a fake out. Because like Percy has been getting non-stop warnings that, like, no, going in the sticks is a bad idea. It will result in some pretty fucked up stuff for you if you do it. And this is the first time we're really getting that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think th- th- you need to commit hard to it. I see that. I think that maybe, like, the counselor who was introduced in this book dying is not the most effective way to do that. Well, yeah, but at the same time... Who gives a shit about Michael Yu? Why bother resurrecting him? He's definitely an expendable character. What if Michael Yu is the spy? <laughs> that, hmm. I mean, that problem kind of solved itself then, I guess. I guess so. But no, I'm not <laughs> sure. It just doesn't feel as final as I think that deaths have been made to be up until now in a way that I think is a choice. I suppose so. Although on the other hand, the the alternative would be like, Oh yeah, I saw um, Michael's crumpled body floating on the river, or like he is like mangled in amongst all the stonework on the bridge. Like, there's no clean way to get rid of him <laughs> with a death like this. I mean, you say that, but like the way that it was done with Beckendorf was like, oh, it was given a lot of gravitas, and there was the actual moment for Percy to be like. I feel like to basically say that he had died and that didn't really happen in the same way here. I suppose, I guess we'll have to wait and see because the next few chap, because I remember also we, we were kind of like this about Beckendorf's death at first. Like we were unsure mm-hmm. about whether the book would really follow through on it. And then the next yeah. few chapters were like, no, yeah, he's fucking dead. So I guess, yeah, we should wait and see. Yeah. Hey, speaking of Beckendorf's death, uh-huh. how the fuck is Nathan Nakamura alive? Good question. <laughs> it's not he's not even brought back for anything particularly like important. Like he stabs Annabeth, but he doesn't really have much of a relationship with Annabeth, so that's not very meaningful. No, it it feels really weird because 
I know, like, we both said, like, oh, Ethan Nakamura, he died. It didn't... I don't mind him not having died. But I've got to be honest, I didn't even clock it as, like, a big event when he came back. Definitely not. I was like, oh, it's this guy again. I just I just forgot he was on that boat because he felt very insignificant. As, as, a, as a whole, Ethan Nakamura is kind of underwhelming. He's, he gets a bit of character in um, it's Battle of the Labyrinth where he's introduced, and we get we get a bit of him being like on the fence about Kronos, which is kind of interesting. But every time he's shown up since then, he has just been Kronos henchman who also has a name. I just think that I would really like it if he was a really good character. Definitely, because like I feel like I don't know. I'm sure there's something to be said about like oh. Ethan Nakamura is like the first like Asian character we've seen in this book. That's true. I don't know. It feels uh, and also just like he feels like a character who should be really important because of the conflicts that were discussed in the fourth book. Mm-hmm. But now he just feels like another bit player. Yeah, definitely. He's like uh, I don't know. I just there, there's potential here for like oh maybe he could be like a character who Percy continually has conflicts with when they fight and is constantly trying to bring him back over and Ethan like wants to but can't for a variety of reasons or lean into the nemesis thing and make him like super revenge hungry yeah but this is like the last book you Mm -hmm. know what I mean it feels like that should be wrapping up yeah and I know that I know there's a sequel series I know we all know this but that doesn't feel like something I don't know. Maybe I know I know like not literally every single thread can be wrapped up in that way. But it does feel but, like the major like if it's related to the war with Kronos, I imagine it's gonna get some kind of resolution. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll really enjoy Ethan Nakamura by the end. Maybe may yeah, I guess there's there's still like half a book left for his character to recover, or maybe he'll never appear again. Either is good. Yeah, I think I think we are feeling in that mode of like, the book is about to be over, but it's it's really not. Uh-huh. Well, again, that's I suppose that's kind of the flip side of like hitting us with the final battle this early. Like, is the rest of the book just the battle, or have we got more stuff coming? Well, Percy's still got to go to Dreamland. I thought this was the land of the sleeping. Oh, it could be. Wait, what is that line in the prophecy again? Let me find it. A half-blood of the eldest gods shall reach sixteen against all odds, and see the world in endless sleep. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, we uh, we theorized maybe dream world sequence going to fight Morpheus, but that doesn't seem like it's panning out. This seems to be the world in endless sleep. I might honestly have been suggesting that because I was remembering a different book series where someone went and like went into Morpheus's realm. <laughs> There's a, I, I, there's a good chance. It's very possible. The, the hero's soul cursed blade shall reap. Hmm. What if Annabeth's knife Ooh. is the cursed blade? Ooh, it could be. We've got a lot of cursed blade candidates. Yeah. Are there any yeah, Greek I'm... blades that aren't cursed? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I'm pretty... I don't think... I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like Greek mythology doesn't have a lot in the way of, like, famous weapons. Uh, 
like Hercules doesn't have like a big sword that Sam is carrying around like Cloud Strife. Yeah, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is the like shield with Medusa's head taped to it. Oh, the Aegis. Yeah, and there's like the trident, mm-hmm. I guess. But I don't know. Yeah, there's uh, no like there's the- no Excalibur in Egyptian mythology. Egyptian? It's just, fuck. I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Wait wait a couple wait wait a couple more episodes. <laughs> uh but, but yeah it's it's interesting i i do i'm a big fan of fucked up swords personally fucked up swords are cool justice for backbiter uh i i still like scythe backbiter but <laughs> yeah i do think that like i'm glad that this the series has gone out of its way to just invent a bunch of greek mythology weapons yeah it's it's always appreciated you need something for kids to pretend to swing around. Yeah. I do think that the one resolution we did get, uh, going back to something a point we made a few minutes ago, uh-huh. was um, with regards to like Percy kind of losing his perspective after having his invulnerability, is uh, Annabeth gets injured. Yeah. I'm not... Okay, I'm, I'm unsure on this. How does this demonstrate uh, Percy's detached perspective? Or, I don't know, just, I guess just, like, things are going to go wrong now, because mm-hmm. he has, I guess, like, put himself in that position. In the same way that we were talking about, like, oh, Michael, you got killed. It, yeah. it feels very similar. Because Michael, you died fighting with Percy, but Annabeth die or not didn't die jesus uh annabeth got injured try uh, (laughs) got injured trying to save percy like literally she jumped in front of like his weak spot that is a really nice moment it is because again she doesn't know about where the weak spot is but she dives and takes the knife anyway because she cares about percy that much that's a good reading of that scene i i read it somewhat differently oh okay I, I, for some reason, I thought that, like, somebody had found out and spilled the secret to Annabeth. Ooh. I kind of like your reading more, though. Yeah, I, I could I could definitely see, like, Nico so covertly telling Annabeth about that. But, yeah, I'm also going to be biased and go with my reading. Did Percy tell Nico? Does Nico know that that's the spot? Oh, Good point. I don't think he did actually say it out loud, because you know, he didn't trust Nico at that point. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I'm I'm interested, but I I enjoy I enjoy the ideas. Uh, I think we're getting pretty close to wrapping it up here. I think so. Is there any any big things that we haven't talked about yet? Nothing big, I don't think. Uh, do you want to go some maybe some quick thoughts, maybe? Yeah. Sure. Uh, Thalia shows up wearing a death to Barbie shirt. She really is just 15 forever, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's she's emo. It's okay. She's she's allowed. The Stoll brothers want to rob everything while everyone in New York is asleep. They're valid and I support them. It is frankly what I would do. <laughs> yeah, that was part of what I was really into with like, it very much does feel like these are children planning out a war. Definitely. Like I enjoyed that part being sprinkled in. I, in terms of the the like the larger scale battle, because like the individual action scenes, those are quite good. But I feel like 
I know the book provides a map of New York in the front, but I don't want to check that for like the battle positions they're talking about to make sense. Uh-huh. Like I feel like the, the geography should be properly mapped out in the text. I I can forgive it a little bit because I feel like it makes enough sense and we at least know like here are the things that are happening. Like we 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 know that like there are like x number of entry points that like there is x minus 1 number of forces that Percy can deploy. We like you know we we can, we can figure out uh, all that. It's just it feels it feels too detailed to just be like okay, we know where they're coming from. We'll send this many people to counter them at these places. Like there's the street names being dropped and stuff. And it feels like it's it's going for like a more top-down strategic view for the reader, but it just it it doesn't land with me possibly just because I mean, it could be like a cultural thing, I guess. Are Americans like much more familiar with the layout of like central Manhattan just from like cultural osmosis? Uh, probably. I mean, what's the what's the famous John Mulaney joke? It's a grid system. Uh, that's not a joke. Saying it out loud, that is not a joke. That's just a that's just a thing to say. It's simply a uh, fact. It's it, 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 it. But like, like if you hear like LaGuardia, and you're like, that means nothing to you. Like LaGuardia is like a place that is, like Long Island Sound. Yeah, that's nothing. I didn't know that. But like these are, the, I guess these are more ingrained in like the the American cultural brain or something. That makes sense. I wonder if like because I bought the American version of uh, this book, uh-huh. just because like I I the covers obviously look much better. We've talked about that before. I like right. to imagine that the UK localized version had like extremely detailed maps pasted in. That's really funny. <laughs> they did like a fucking illustrated Lord of the Rings. God, yes. Actually, I would really enjoy an illustrated version of these books. Yeah, that could be good. I wonder if such a thing already exists. Guess not. Shall we jump to our segment? Yeah, uh, Percy Jackson characters are not cis het. Uh, Jane, do you have a nomination for this week? I don't know. I've done. I, I did the bury your gaze joke with Dionysus's kid last book, so I can't just do that again for Michael Yu. No. The problem is there's a lot of action in these chapters and not a lot of character moments. Or, the, you know, there's the character moments are all like related to the action. There's not a lot else to sink your teeth into, if that makes sense. True. This segment gets a lot easier when we're being introduced to new characters constantly. God, it really does. It's almost as if this is the last book of the series and we're focusing on established characters. <laughs> Could be. Give uh, us your best shot, though. This is part of the fun of the segment. I can hear you in pain. I am in pain. Uh, the the spirits of uh, the Hudson and the East River are angry husbands. I really like that, actually. <laughs> uh, I'm going to toss it to... Uh... We cannot give it to Clarice again. We cannot. I know, I know, I know. It's really hard not to. Uh, she's not even in these chapters. I shouldn't do it. Um... I'm going to give it to, um, I don't know, fucking, have we given it to Percy yet? This this section started off as Percy Jackson is trans, and then we had to expand it. So oh. yes, repeatedly. <laughs> Although I think it has actually been a while, so. That's true. I just think there's some fun, you know, uh, further evidence that Percy Jackson is bi. Uh, 
at one point six Aphrodite cabin girls kiss his cheek at once I don't know how they did that but I, I think just like if you're bi you're more powerful and able to be <laughs> kissed by six people at once you know what that's a fair point how so, how what is like the mechanics of that uh, like, hmm. was it like three to a cheek maybe the river of sticks as well as making you vulnerable also like turns you into like DK mode like, turns you, you into your, what your, your head is like inflated Oh, okay. You're in you're on you're in bobblehead mode. Yes. That that would be very fi- funny and silly. <laughs> it's like the fucking Annabeth comes up and is like, "Percy, what did you do while you were gone?" Everyone and he's is... like a fucking <laughs> And he's like a fucking triangle and he's like, "I didn't eat the cheese." <laughs> but but it's obvious to everyone that he did eat the cheese. Everyone is everyone is just too embarrassed and freaked out by it to say anything. <laughs> that really changes like a lot of the context. Like maybe the reason Kronos was like looking down on the battlefield beforehand wasn't because he was like surveying the information of the tactics of the strategy of the formations, but because he was like trying not to laugh. He was like, "What the fuck happened to his head?" why is his head expanded big and large that's why that's why chronos turned his eyes gold because luke's head would have gotten expanded as well so he needs to distract everyone from that so they don't know he was in the river sticks oh my god (laughs) everybody's so distracted by his fucked up eyes that they are just not noticing his giant head (laughs) there's nothing in canon that could disprove this this is a truly powerful theory that we've uncovered I think we should wrap it up. I think we're not going to top this. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Thank you. If you'd like to reach the show, you can check us out on Twitter at UnwiseGirls. we got a link to our email, to our Discord server, uh, to our Patreon, patreon.com slash UnwiseGirls. If you want to support us, you can leave a rating, a review, uh, tell your friends. Always really helps. Uh, or you can yeah. support us on Patreon directly. For $1 a month, you get a special role as a camp counselor. Uh, uh, in our Discord server. For $3 a month, you get a special role as a friend of Dionysus, as well as all of our bonus content. Uh, we do things like talk about Homestuck. We talk about uh, Doctor Who. We talk about uh, the famous television series Survivor. We just chat about our days. We have good, fun discussions that you oh, might yeah. enjoy if you enjoy this podcast. Um, and for $5 a month, you get the special Discord role of Aphrodite's Chosen, all of our bonus content, and a special shout-out at the end of episodes. This week, we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode... See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye-bye. Bye.